Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Lots of people quote Philippians 4.13. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's one of those verses that lots of people know just from repetition. But like many of those kinds of verses, it's taken out of context. If you read it in context, I don't know if we'd be so quick to quote it. Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 11 and 12, I have learned how to get along happily whether I have much or little. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of contentment in every situation, whether it be full or empty, whether I have food or am hungry, whether I have plenty or am in want. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> so I don't know how many of us would want to go through the process of learning that Paul went through to obtain that knowledge. But it looks like we may uh, get a, a chance to learn a good deal about it on our own, uh, whether we like it or not. It says Paul learned how. That's very comforting to me, that he learned how to be content. He learned how to be not only uh, enduring difficulties, but to be at peace in the midst of the difficulties. The fact that he had to learn uh, makes it possible for me to also learn. Now, I'd like to say that I've been working on this issue in my own life really hard for a lot of years, but that's not, not really true. One of the nature, one of, one of the characteristics of the nature of, of discontentment is uh, it is not focused on trying to overcome itself because discontentment is an expression of self-centeredness and uh, selfishness. And so it, it uh, like a cancer cell, it alienates itself from all other input so that it can celebrate its discontentedness. So I can't say that I've been working on this issue a lot in my life because I allowed it to gain a foothold and become uh, a kingdom to itself in me. And so the Lord, in his love and grace and patience, has had to go after it in me on certain occasions and he would make some progress with me and then I would slide back. Uh, so I, I want to try to talk to you today about some things that maybe maybe you don't have trouble with it. I, I don't know that any of us is immune to what I'm going to talk about. So uh, even if you think it doesn't apply to you, give me a, an hour to probe, probe around inside uh, about this or let the Holy Spirit do the probing. I don't need to do any probing, but if the Holy Spirit does any touching of tender spots in you regarding your lack of contentment, then uh, it'll be important and it'll be worth the, the time and effort you gave it. Um, discontentment 
is manifested by grumbling and complaining. Now, the only way I could do a message on grumbling uh, would you normally be that I would do you a how-to message. I'd be highly qualified to teach on how to grumble, but I wouldn't be too qualified to teach on uh, how to overcome it. But one day I was reading First uh, Corinthians chapter 10. I'd read it, I don't know, 100 times? Who knows? Where Paul is describing the, uh, the parallel between the people of Israel and the church. And he's addressing the Corinthians who are grumbling and complaining and among other things, uh, dealing with all kinds of aberrant behavior. And he says to them in chapter 10, he says, you know, what happened to Israel was for our example. And then he goes on to say that uh, you, you don't need to follow their example who lusted in the wilderness and who were overthrown and whose bodies lay in the desert dead, who didn't come into their full inheritance he says, you know, all that was was written for our examples so that we won't follow the same path. And then he, he lists, and of course, if you want to read the story, read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 on your own, uh, and then read Numbers chapters 12 through 15 and chapter 21. You'll see in every one of these chapters, uh, or every one of these examples given in the, in the book of Numbers, incredible griping and complaining against Moses and Aaron, but ultimately against God, is uh, demonstrated in the midst of lust and idolatry and fornication and blasphemy. Grumbling is listed right along with all those terrible things I just listed. Grumbling and complaining, Exodus chapter 15, uh, verse 24, Exodus chapter 16, verse 1 and 3, if you want to read them on your own. Uh, Numbers chapter 21, Numbers chapter 12 through 15. And when you think about uh, idolatry, fornication, blasphemy, and then grumbling, and you think about how we excuse ourselves when it comes to grumbling, if we do, what a deception that is. Why is grumbling so evil? Well, basically because grumbling says God doesn't care, God doesn't love, God can't be trusted, God wants to kill me. It's the opposite of faith, the opposite of thanksgiving, and the opposite of the truth. Faith, uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? Because he who comes to God must believe first that God exists and that he has a heart desire of good aimed toward us, that God's motive toward us is good. It's not enough to believe in God. Demons believe in God, James says. But Faith doesn't just believe God exists. Faith believes in God's character for good. 
And the reason it takes faith is because the nature of the warfare that we are in gives quite a lot of seemingly strong evidence that God doesn't care or that God is not good. Uh, so faith, he who comes to me must believe that I am and that I'm a rewarder of those who seek me. The giving of thanks, grumbling, is the opposite of the giving of thanks. The grumbling says there's nothing to be thankful for. And, uh, of course, the whole issue of does God love me? Well, the grumblers in Numbers and Exodus say, they actually say that God brought us out here to kill us. God's whole motive was to, to lure us out here in the desert so we could die. So, almost 80%, uh, well, actually, some researchers say uh, 87 to 90% of the diseases caused uh, in our culture today are rooted in our thoughts. The remaining 10 to 13% have to do with diet, exercise, and lifestyle. That research is being confirmed by every new research uh project that is launched to to uh, verify it complaining is the verbal manifestation of the poison that is behind so much of our disease both mental and physical um, now before you you start defending yourself against the 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 uh, accusation if you want to hear it as an accusation. I'd rather call it a diagnosis. Uh, but before you start defending yourself against that, this, just give, give yourself a chance to, to examine various forms of complaining that we all do. Now, if there ever was a message you ever got from me where you could write me and say, you know, Clay, you just projected all of your stuff onto us why don't you just teach us the stuff that uh, applies to us and you deal with your own stuff? Because I'll tell you why. Because I don't know what to tell you except by what I've lived through. Jesus said we, we uh, testify about what we have seen and what we've experienced. And uh, that's all I can give you. And And... I'm a loud mouth. When I complain, I complain so everybody suffers from it. Some people's complaints are quiet and private. And those can be just as toxic as the loud mouth kind. Um, although, I'll show you here in just a minute that what comes out of our mouth goes right back into our brain, which then goes right back into our heart, which then comes right back out of our mouth. So it's it's a, either a vicious cycle or a blessed cycle, depending on whether what's coming out of our mouth is is a blessing or cursing. And uh, James tells us that it's it's obviously not right if the fountain brings forth both good water and poison water. And his implication here is, of course, that that's not that's not possible in the natural and so why is it that we find that in the spirit of people so this mixture of poison and good in us 
has got to be cleansed out and corrected. Now, when you read those stories there in Numbers, uh, and, and maybe you should stop the machine or unless you're driving, take some time to just stop and read through those chapters I, I just listed and uh, look at the behavior of the people. Now, if you're not careful when you read those stories, you'll think, oh man, God is God is really angry and uh, uh, I don't want to tick God off. And, and you can get these funny pictures in your head of the people just kind of being bumbling and uh, and lacking in understanding and God is angry and impatient. And if you, if you had a parent who stood over you and yelled at you when you're trying to learn how to do your... Uh, math or whatever, or you had a teacher that did that to you, and you read these chapters, you won't see what really is happening in those chapters. You'll just project onto the reading your own unfair, abused experience. And then you'll project that onto God and uh, start getting ideas about God that aren't right. Because see, Psalm 18 says, to the, to the crooked, God appears crooked. And to the, uh, to the righteous, God is seen for who he is. So when we project our images of God onto him uh, based on our own woundedness and brokenness, we get a, a skewed image of God, and then we carry that around inside of us, and it's an idol because it's not the real God. And then we live in the fruit of our idolatry, uh, which is all the negative emotions you can name. Insecurity, fear, anxiety, uh, unbelief, doubt, and all the rest of it. So having the right view of God, uh, as uh, A.W. Tozer said, the a right view of God is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. If the foundation is crooked, the temple will not rise correctly. So our worship of God uh, should come from a right view of what God is like and who God really is. So when you read these stories, you've got to ask the Holy Spirit to help you see what's really going on here. Uh, it's it's mysterious, but you gotta you gotta hold on to the fact that God created a certain degree of freedom in the human heart to respond to Him. If that's not true, then God has just created a race of robots, and none of this is is of any value at all. Uh, and we all know that's not true. So the people's response to God that you see there is coming out of a of a a wicked rebellious, idolatrous, lustful heart. And uh, God finally just gives them what they're what they believe for. He, he lets them he lets them have just exactly what they are saying is going to happen. He said, you brought us out here to die. He said, okay, after all the miracles that I've done to prove different, you say, I've brought you out here to die. I'm going to let you die. You're going to die in the wilderness. Your carcasses will fall in the desert heat uh, because that's what you believe for. So having said that, let's examine a few things that are related to grumbling 
and complaining. If grumbling in God's eyes is in the same category as lust, idolatry, blasphemy, and fornication, then maybe we better check our hearts. And the way we check our hearts is to notice what comes out of our mouth, which we'll talk about more in just a minute. Complain, I've got seven categories here. You could add to them, I'm sure. But let's just look at these seven manifestations of grumbling. Uh, the first one is just general complaining. Now, uh, we all, I mean, we all have manifestations of this, but some of us have uh, lowered it down to a devilish art. I mean, uh, the glass is not ever half full. It's always half empty and headed toward totally empty. And then we're going to die. And uh, just the general complaint. I, I notice in, in the morning, if I start my day saying out loud, this is the day the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. Or... Um, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Or blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You made the heavens, the highest heavens, and all the starry hosts, the earth, and all that is within it, the seas, and all that are in them. You give life to everything, and the multitude of heaven worship you. You alone are Lord. If that's the way I start my day, uh, it'll be in that mode all day long. The sad fact is, for some foolish reason, I don't understand fully except sin. I'll start the day saying, I cannot believe it is time to get up. I cannot believe the car is not starting. I cannot believe that I'm running late. I cannot believe this stupid person is in front of me driving so slow. I can't stand these blasted red lights. They're green just as much as they're red. Have you ever noticed that? They're green just as often as they're red, but we call them red lights. Anyway, uh, complaining, once you start complaining uh, the whole day begins to fall in that set. This is not deep teaching for heaven's sake. Y'all, this is, we all know this. Well, I don't, you know, you, you say, Clay, what are you, what are you driving at in this? Well, I'll tell you what, I've noticed among people that normally have not been complaining that with the duress of the stock market and many people losing their 401ks and many people finding their retirement in jeopardy and many people finding their jobs in jeopardy, uh, all the security systems are being shaken. And I'm finding lots of believers in my acquaintance who never were complainers beginning more and more to speak complaining words uh, and uh, it's not aimed at God directly. It's easily first aimed at politicians. That's not hard to do. Uh, you know, aiming negative words at politicians is pretty easy to do. Uh, but underneath that, valid as many of the statements about politicians they make may be, 
underneath it is is an anxiety and underneath the anxiety is an accusation against the goodness of God because you see you begin we, it's easy to say we trust God when we are living in a culture where abundance prevails and anything we need is literally right down the street uh, uh, at our fingertips but uh, there's there's a cleansing, purging work that has to be done in the hearts of God's people. I'm not talking about the pagans now. I'm not talking about the wickedness of the country, which we can rail at easily. I'm talking about the, the, the level of faith that the average Christian lives in, the level of obedience or lack thereof that, that the average Christian operates in, the church in America has chosen years ago to not grow up and to be satisfied to sit on a pew and look for the rapture and uh, talk about being born again forever and ever and ever uh, as if the Bible had nothing else to say except John 3.16. I've said this many times. Thank God for John 3.16. But the 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 point of being born is to grow up and we have not grown up in our culture as christians uh, what i'm saying is we have not grown up as christians and affected our culture with the gospel the church in america is pretty much ineffectual uh, i know statistics can be manipulated we've talked about that before but I read a few days ago in a, a journal from a pretty reputable research organization, Christian research organization, that 95% of present Christian America has never led another person to Christ. 95%. If that percentage uh, is skewed uh, in a negative way, let's say it's 80% has never led anybody to Christ. That's still horrendous. Now, I'm not I'm not saying everybody ought to be out you know, knocking on doors or evangelizing every person that they see, uh, or you know, giving a track to everything that moves. But ninety five percent of us have never spoken to another person about Christ and and led another person to Jesus. So what are we preoccupied with? I mean, what do we do with our energy and our time? And so you let any kind of insecurity or, or instability strike the life of a person like that. You, you know, you, you, you nick them, and whatever bleeds out is what is in them in abundance, which we'll talk about here again in just a moment. Complaining in general is just that general attitude that sets the pace for your attitude and lifestyle. Discouraging talk is, is you think of grumbling as just a, you know, you have one certain idea of what a grumble is, but here's a grumble. Uh, well, uh, you might think that's going to work out okay, but I'll tell you this, my experience has been, and then we start pouring water on, on somebody's, parade. We're not giving them advice because we want them to avoid difficulty and you want to help them find a better path. You're just 
resentful that they're talking about something positive that they're about to do. And you want to make sure that not only do they not get to enjoy it, but you want to enjoy telling them how it didn't work out for you too. So you're miserable and you want them to be miserable. Only, only the Lord can tell you whether you've ever been guilty of that kind of thing or not. And I want to tell you, I'm not guilty of everything I'm talking about here, doggone it. Don't, don't, don't start thinking that everything I'm talking about comes out of my experience. Most of it does, though. Criticism. Here's a, here's a secret kind of grumble. Criticizing other people is a form of grumbling. James chapter 5, verse 9 says, don't grumble against one another. And this comes in all kinds of forms, every form of criticism you can think of. Just watch yourself today or tomorrow if you're listening at night. Make a note, mental note during the day of how many negative thoughts you have towards people. Maybe people you work with, maybe members of your family, maybe strangers you've never laid eyes on. But notice the strain of negativity that goes through your mind towards certain people in a given situation. That's a form of grumbling. It's complaining. It's a form of, of a disrespect to God. And, at the, of course, obviously, it's unloving, uh, to say the least. It's the opposite of love. Number four, cussing. Now, I'm sure most people who listen to Nightlight don't cuss. But I'm a man of unclean lips dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's where I came from. And I want to tell you, I hear testimonies of people who say when they met the Lord, the first thing God did was clean up their mouth. Well, I wish that was true for me. It wasn't the first thing God did for me, and I still struggle with it. And if I'll just stop watching the news and reading the newspaper, I probably could clean up a lot of my language immediately. But uh, I've talked about this in previous messages, and I'm not trying to be funny about it because I'm not, I don't take it lightly. I, I believe that cussing uh, is is a very evil thing and that when Christians do it, we are more guilty of misusing the power of the tongue than pagans are because our mouth has creative God-ordained authority in it for good. Life and death is in the power of the tongue, Proverbs tells us. Uh, you'll eat good by the fruit of your mouth. Uh, many, many other verses we could cite. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. So when I speak a, a cuss word, you know, that if you call the devil an ugly name, he takes it as worship because you're operating in the spirit of the kingdom that he rules. Uh, when Jesus wanted to pay the devil back for cutting off John the Baptist's head, he went out and healed every everybody he saw. That's why you that's why you pay the devil back. Um, and I don't need to dwell on that, but I just I just keep saying, folks. I you know I mean I, 
Mary Mary gets frustrated at me when I talk like this. She says, you're going to have people thinking that you're just a raving lunatic that runs around the house screaming and yelling and cussing. It's not that. It's just that in those given moments when some horrible thing has happened or I get news about some stupidity that has been ensconced as a new law uh, pushed through by a bunch of nincompoops, who don't have any right to be in the office they sit in, except that God has given us the kind of stupid rulers that we deserve. Uh, sometimes I will let expletives come out of my mouth that uh, should not be in the mouth of a believer. Shouldn't be. But it's a habit, and it's a habit of the heart. And every See, I, I've never been able to overcome bad language by somebody telling me, you shouldn't talk ugly. I've never gotten that. That, doesn't, that sounds to me like a third grade school mom uh, washing little boys' mouths out with soap, you know, which I've always thought was kind of a bizarre thing. But I'll tell you what, what began to change it in me was when I saw that I was misusing my mouth that God had given creative authority to, and I was wasting bullets by speaking negative words or unclean words or words that we technically call cussing. Uh, and they were, am I making sense? I, I couldn't overcome it just because it, Somebody told me, well, that, that's a bad thing. You shouldn't do that. That's not nice. I never understood nice. Uh, I couldn't comprehend nice. Nice actually comes from a, a, an ancient French root that means weak or unable to confront. So I didn't want to be nice. I wanted to get the point across. But to speak impurely in the name of a holy God, as if you're speaking on God's behalf, that makes no sense. But even more to the point, to waste the power of articulate speech that God has given us. See, what makes us in the image of God is that we have the power of speech, among other things. And so when I misuse speech in the name of the Lord for God's purposes, that makes no sense. And when I finally realized that, realized every time that I gave vent to that kind of thing, how it disappointed people, yes, that was a, that was a, a good enough reason to stop it. But more than disappointing people, it was misusing creative energy and causing what God intended for life and light and goodness to produce uh, its opposite. Well, number five, another form of grumbling is self-pity. Self-pity is not loud-mouthed except to your own ears. When it goes on inside of you, it takes up all the room in your head. And it's a form of grumbling against the Lord. It uh, likes to recite back to itself all the things that have been deprived. All the things that you should have gotten that you didn't get. All the affection, all of the accolades, all of the respect, all of the uh, honor at work. 
all of the proper uh, responses that should go to someone of your standing and you didn't get it and you didn't get what belonged to you because of people's selfishness or uh, whatever it is, self-pity can easily fall over into the even darker mindset of envy. Uh, self-pity and envy are closely related. And uh, what uh, I remember hearing a woman say one time who had uh, just been abandoned by her husband, uh, how, how resentful she felt toward people who were in restaurants together. Uh, and uh, holding hands and showing affection to each other. How angry she felt at them. Now look, uh, that's, that's a, I don't want to say it's normal. It's normal for fallen people. And I was grateful that this lady recognized that because she told this to me as a confession, not as just a passing statement. Uh, she she saw immediately the evil of it and uh, and brought it to a, a stop. And the way she brought it to a stop was by uh, recognizing that she belonged to the Lord and that uh, her her future was secure in Christ. Now, but we live in a day in the life of of the church where belonging to the Lord and knowing that your future is secure is considered a meaningless cliche. Who cares about pieing the sky by and by? I'm hurting now. I need answers now. And in a certain context, I understand that. Yes, we all need answers now. But you know what? We also all have to live with unrequited love in many relationships, with unfulfilled dreams in many of our endeavors, and with uh, unsatisfied appetites. We all have to live with those. That's part of the nature of this present condition. And self-pity, and envy, and then number six, which I'm about to go to, impatience, all feed each other in a spirit of demand that God get off get off of it and 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 start coming through for us why when is God gonna ever come through for me and uh you know i don't I just don't see that attitude in the in the writings of Christians of previous generations there's a level of of sinfulness and in this present culture, Christian culture, that really borders on, if not fully manifests, the very level of unbelief of the children of Israel when they first came out of Egypt that is recorded in in Numbers and Exodus that I've already cited. Um it's like we've digressed that far. Uh, people turning away from Christ and embracing all kinds of weird isms and doctrines because Jesus hasn't brought them their 
particular boyfriend or girlfriend or or job or level of income or Jesus didn't come through with this or that or the other. On the, whereas our, our spiritual ancestors, some of them had the funerals of several of their children. George MacDonald, I think, I think he he lost three of his children, four maybe. Many, many other believers. I mean, what what is what is failure to achieve a certain professional goal to the death of a child? And yet these these early believers who didn't have any of the uh, uh, advantages materially that we take for granted every day uh, faced premature deaths of loved ones, as I've said, even children. I, I, I can't imagine anything on the planet more more daunting, more agonizing you know, on the natural level than the loss of a child. Some of you could well inform me a lot better than I can inform you about what that's like. You've been through it. But you see, impatience, self-pity, all of this, it all of this stuff denies the resurrection. It denies the redemptive work of Christ. It denies the cross. It denies the, sh- the, the sacrifice of the Son of God to purchase us out of this present evil world and to restore us to our true identity and destiny in him and to dis- uh, eventually restore the whole creation. Now, uh, I'm well aware. It's easy for me to sit here and talk about this. Uh, I, I, I try to talk about about it from my vantage point without getting too uh, uh, arrogant in trying to speak to you from about your vantage point. But I just, I don't know any other way to say it than to say what I'm saying. I've listed things that maybe don't relate to you at all, but I think at the bottom line, all of us to some degree are dealing with a level of complaining and discouraged talk and criticism and uh, cussing to some form, in some form or other, self-pity, impatience. And then ultimately, this all leads basically to depression. Depression has become big, big business in the West. And uh, I I don't have the time here to go off on the whole subject, but let me just say this. More and more research is showing, medical research is showing that placebos produce the same effect as so-called antidepressant drugs. And though there are rare cases where an antidepressant literally can pull someone out of a hole, uh, the, the, the credit given to chemicals for the restoration of brain function is way overblown and hyped uh, in order to sell millions and trillions of dollars worth of pills. Uh, one researcher at uh, the University of Colorado recently reported that uh, after two years of research on psychotropic medicine, 
that they found that the human body has within itself the capacity to produce whatever chemical adjustment needs to be produced to bring brain function and, and chemical uh, balance back to the body. Well, who would have thought that, that the Creator would have thought to make the brain capable of that? See, the brain and the heart communicate with each other. And also, current research has shown that the heart has a nervous system of its own that is just as powerful as the brain's nervous system. And the heart nervous system and the brain nervous system communicate back and forth to each other. That means that the heart thinks. The heart, uh, all this language we've used all these years about the heart, and then later on we went through a, a stage where we said, you know, that that really needs to be corrected. You know, we speak of uh, loving someone with all of our heart or having a broken heart or having a divided heart. That's just poetic language. Well, it turns out it's not it's not poetic language. It really has empirical truth, uh, measurable empirical evidence behind it, that the heart does think and feel and decide uh, in ways that we can't describe adequately here. But Proverbs already had told us this, Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart above everything else. For out of it come the forces that control your destiny. Now, how do you watch over your heart? Watch over your heart above all else. For out of it comes forth the forces that control your destiny. Well, Jesus explains to us how we can watch over our heart. Now, don't take on board his opening statement in this verse, he says, you brood of vipers. I don't think he's aiming that at you. But the principle that follows does apply to all of us. How can you speak anything good? For out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. See, the principle is that what's in your heart in abundance is what will come out of your mouth. A good man or woman brings forth out of the mouth good stored up in him or her. The evil man or woman brings forth from the store of evil that is in him or her. Jesus says this. We store in our heart what comes from our mouth, and what comes from our mouth gets stored back in our heart. For future reference, there's a vicious cycle here. So, What's in our heart in abundance comes out of our mouth, and what comes out of our mouth strengthens and reinforces what's stored up in our heart. And so that's exactly why Paul says uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, I think verse 20, uh, don't, don't waste your energy and your mouth on foolish, silly talk or immoral talk. Have you ever noticed that if you speak, if you use uh, immoral language, it stirs up immoral appetites in you? You may be speaking on a subject that is far removed from lust itself, but if you use lustful or, or raunchy language, uh, it will immediately awaken in your body 
uh, a tendency in that direction. And that's why Paul says, uh, don't, don't, don't speak like that. It's not a matter of don't talk ugly, you know, don't, don't talk ugly, talk nice. It's not what it's about. You, you don't talk ugly, not just because of some kind of, uh, prudery, and you don't overcome prudery by speaking immorally. You don't. You don't over. See, prudery is a is a denial of the goodness of of God given sexuality. You don't overcome the good the, the 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 false ideas of prudery by speaking in lewd or impure or vulgar or lustful language. You overcome both prudery and impure language by speaking the truth in love. And and uh, see, the opposite of all these things I've been listing, what is the one thing that is standing in opposition to all these negatives that we've been describing? It's Ephesians 5.20. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to God. See, it's the opposite of the idolatry of the age. Romans 1 says they did not desire to keep God in their knowledge, nor did they honor him or give him proper respect, but they became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart became darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools all because they would not acknowledge God or give him thanks. So here's a simple, childlike remedy. When you start your day tomorrow, and you can begin it now, because it takes all the practice we can muster. Start looking for things to give thanks for. doesn't take long. The air you breathe, the fact that you can breathe it, the, the, the loved ones around you, the friendship, salvation, a blue sky, a blue bird in that sky, colors, food, a car that you drive to work, a, a job you drive a car to. If you don't have a job, you find some other thing to give thanks for. The fact that at the present moment you're safe, that you live in a, a relatively safe uh, area. Last night our area was overrun with tornadoes, something that we haven't had to deal with in this part of the country uh, um, a lot. And... Uh, Mary and I noticed in the news reports, uh, every person that was interviewed, their house was a shambles, their automobiles turned upside down, up in, uh, sitting up in a tree. Every one of the people interviewed said, look, we're so thankful that we have each other. We're so thankful that we're alive. One sweet black lady who'd lost everything she had uh, she said, I'm so grateful to to be 
uh, standing here able to talk to you. God is good. Now that just that just infuriates some people. You know, they want to rail at God for uh, these events. And we've talked about this before, by the way. It, God doesn't sit around calculating who he can hurt by capriciously now and then sending a tornado. That's a complete misunderstanding of the nature of nature and the nature of evil and the nature of spiritual warfare. And the sovereignty of God that rules over all creation does not mean that God capriciously sends agony uh, to people uh, for some kind of pleasure of his own. Uh, if God allows tragedy, he's got a redemptive purpose in it. And uh, uh, he is He is the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. And uh, until you get that settled in your own heart, like right now, if, if just this conversation we're having, this one-sided conversation, uh, is causing you to be awakened to lots of uh, un expressed frustration toward God, then quit suppressing it. Let it come up into the light because suppressed negative thoughts are very toxic and they produce more toxicity until you're just a walking grumble. You know, uh, this, this whole issue of grumbling and it's, spiritual uh, uh, seriousness is illustrated so well in uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis when uh, Lewis is uh, asking his guide who's taking him through the, the uh, heaven and hell. He sees a, a little old woman who is just grumbling and complaining about everything. And uh, she's an irritable and irritating. And, and Lewis, who is being guided through this scenario by George MacDonald, Lewis says to MacDonald, is it, is it right for this woman to be damned just for the relatively small sin of grumbling? And MacDonald says to Lewis, in the context of the story. It's not so much that she's damned for grumbling as that she has become nothing but a grumble. And uh, the idea here, of course, is that her damnation is not that she broke a rule and is going to be punished for it. It is that her very nature has disintegrated down to its lowest common denominator her grumbling had become such an, a, an, a force in her life that the, there's nothing left now but a grumble. Now, I hope that shakes us awake a little bit about who we are and how we relate to the world we live in, especially as we see difficult times approaching. You can begin right now if you haven't already begun, and I know many of you are well past this. This is maybe simplistic to many of you. But, you know, it's good to be reminded. I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to be the 
teacher. I don't like carrying the title of teacher because James says teachers have to answer to a greater judgment than other people do. But if you are in that position of uh, communicating truth to people and you find that you're not you're not keeping up with it yourself, then it becomes a great blessing when you hear messages from other people that remind you where you should be and what you should be doing. Uh, you know, Peter says in, uh, I think, First Peter or Second Peter, one of them, he says, uh, I'm reminding you of these things. I'm stirring them up into your remembrance, even though I know you know them. And Paul tells the Philippians, I've told you these things before, but I don't mind repeating them because for you it is safe to repeat these things to you. It's a safe thing for you. It's a good thing for you. So if I'm saying things that are simplistic or things that we all should have known since grammar school or Sunday school, I'm not so sure that, that that's a bad thing when I realize how easily we let slip away from us the things that matter the most. And uh, what does it profit a man if he uh, preaches great sermons but speaks unkindly to his family uh, or or uh, gripes and complains about everything uh, under the sun? And you'd be surprised, maybe you wouldn't, about how, how many great preachers publicly have uh, terrible reputations behind closed doors. Not Certainly not all of them. I don't want to put that in your thinking that every preacher you see is a hypocrite who is a terror behind closed doors. But I deal so often with pastors' families where, uh, for whatever reason, his public persona doesn't match anything like his private interaction with his family. And uh, depression and all the negative issues that relate to it, I believe can be traced back most of the time, with rare exceptions, to a heart disease of ingratitude and complaint levied against God, rooted in some disappointment or some frustration or some unfulfilled dream or some broken relationship and it uh, it has festered into a, a, a fountain of poison that is uh, infecting everything. Hebrews 12 says, and Deuteronomy 29 says, a root of bitterness will defile everything around it. And so uh, let's purge out the poison and the mixture. See, this here again deals with this struggle that I've been addressing over the last few months of spiritual mixture where the holy and the unholy, uh, which cannot coexist, uh, mix together and produce a poison uh, fountain. Well, in closing, let me just say that uh, since we are heading into such dangerous and difficult times, more than any that we've seen in our generation, maybe more than we've seen in any generation. Uh, Begin to train yourself to give God thanks for all the good that has come from him and that does come from him. Because, see, 
denial of God's goodness is a denial of the resurrection. I mentioned that a while ago. Let me close with it. When Jesus rose from the dead, he set in motion the beginning of the new creation. The end of the world happened on the day Jesus stepped out of the tomb. That was the end of the old order. The new order is being manifested more and more and more in the people of God as we learn to trust God and obey him. He then releases more of the kingdom through us and to us. So we live in an alternate society of, of uh, believers who, who operate in an alternate economic system. We operate in an, an alternate uh, emotional system. We all operate in an alternate sexual system. We, we don't live like the world lives. If we do live like the world lives, we will end up being partakers of their plagues, according to Romans eight, uh, Revelation 18. So God is teaching us more and more how to trust him in the face of want, in the face of uh, loss, in the face of danger, in the face of economic collapse, in the face of broken relationships and deep disappointments. He's training us to rule and reign with him. The purpose of this life is not happiness. Yes, God wants you to be happy, but he wants you to be happy in the ultimate sense. Like what Aslan says to the children in the close of the last battle. He says, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. God means for you to be ultimately happy, but in order for you to get there, you, you're going to have to let him do the work in you that purges out of you the things that make for unhappiness, which include all that we've been describing. So I just wonder how well I'm going to remember all this stuff I'm saying to you if tomorrow uh, two or three things in a row happen that aggravate me. Uh, I, I, you know, frustration can either be an opportunity for growth or an opportunity for uh, deepening poison. And to be honest, we've had a lot of frustrating issues in this ministry the last few years. Uh, you know, frustration uh, is one of the most difficult kinds of emotions to deal with uh, because it concentrates all of your focus into one little spot. Uh, and you're trying to get over this one hump and you can't get you can't get past this one issue. If you could just get this one thing to move, everything would fall in place. And so frustration has this tendency to bring all of your best hopes into, into conflict with some one little stupid event that won't make way for all the good that could happen. And so in that frustration, it's very easy to slip over into uh, accusation against the Lord, griping and complaining against the Lord. What if God is not nearly as interested in the great good you're trying to accomplish as he is uncovering 
your accusation capacity so it can be cleansed and purged away. It's just a thought. But after so many years of walking with the Lord, I've found out some things about him, and among them is he's not nearly so interested in my productivity for him as he is interested in my relationship with him. And he will allow all kinds of frustrations and, and, and battles and struggles and disappointments in order to uncover to me the level of unbelief and mistrust and lack of faith and most of all, lack of love that I have in relation to him. I hope you're grasping this. Because see, when when the mountains crumble into the sea and the earth is rocking and reeling like a drunken man and all the systems of the world are collapsing, all that's going to matter, all that's going to matter is your relationship with him, your relationship with each other. All that will matter is who you love and how you love. And love never expresses itself in grumbling. It, they, the two cannot coexist. Neither can faith exist, uh, coexist with grumbling. And Paul says it's faith working by love that is the perfection of our life in Christ. Faith which works by love. So grumbling is the very opposite of faith working by love. You, you cannot have you just can't have it in your life. I'm appalled at how much grumbling I have allowed in my life. And I'm amazed at how much good God has been able to accomplish through me and to me in spite of my ongoing failure in this area. So I am refusing to continue to fail in this area. I refuse in Jesus' name to live grumbling and complaining. And I will become more and more and more a fountain of praise and thanksgiving to God. We who are the objects of his mercy should be the trumpets of his praise. God bless you all. Thanks for listening.